Let's turn to the text. I'm going to read from verse 12 and to the following, to the end, chapter 1, verse 18. Now I want you to know, brothers, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel, so that my chains in Christ have become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else. And that most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord because of my chains, have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ even from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me affliction in my chains. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice, yes, and I will rejoice. We are really getting into the heart of the matter. As people say, the Philippians is about joy, and this is at the heart of that theme. And let's see. How he gets to verse 18, that great statement about joy, Christian joy. But let us begin a bit earlier from verse 15 and following. Last week, we have heard from Paul that there are a couple of evidences of progress of the gospel, the greater progress. Inside of the prison, I am preaching the gospel, I am sharing the gospel, so everybody know something about Christ. And unexpectedly, he said, outside of prison, so many brothers are now proclaiming or actually talking about Christ because of my chains. And the reasoning behind that was they were challenged by what Paul was doing inside of prison. And if he could do that, I could do this. And they were talking about Christ. So that was very encouraging to hear. But today, he gives us few more verses about what was really happening. The people who were talking about Christ outside of prison, shockingly, some are doing that out of envy and strife, What is worse about them? They were doing this because of their selfish ambition, thinking that by doing so, it will cause the the greater affliction in Paul's mind, in his life. So it is puzzling and at the same time shocking. And we are offended. How can people do that? And last week, we, we 
we notice the word was just simply talking about Christ, but obviously from verse 15 and following, they are preaching. They are proclaiming Christ. Who are these people? I don't know. We don't know. But what is clear to us is that they belong to verse 14, that the most of the brothers. And Paul does not condemn them in such a way that he will do in Galatians. So we could conclude that group of men who are preaching out of false motives and wrong motives, they were preaching the right doctrine, orthodox theology, the gospel. Because if you know Paul, what would he say if they were proclaiming false gospel? He will immediately correct and condemn such a false gospel. But he doesn't do that. What's dividing that these two groups of men was not the content of the gospel. It was not their identity. Paul does not question their identity. They are Christians. They are brothers. But they had wrong attitudes toward Paul. Paul, while he was in prison, he had his enemies outside. They are preaching the gospel, and there's a greater progress by the men outside, but some had hostile intent toward Paul. So here I want to address, before we get to the joy part, the reality of Christian life. All of you, all of us, we will see in the life of a church, in the life of that leadership, if, you belong, if we belong to a presbytery or general assembly, family, individual, whoever, we will witness some kind of contradiction in our lives. That's the reality. It is embarrassing It is sad. It is offensive. Puzzling. And yes, hypocritical. But that's the reality. But we should have right attitude, mindset about that. Some people will say, I knew it. All religions are simply a facade. They are a bunch of hypocrites, so I am done with the church. And probably you have heard that so many times. But when we are confronted by the world or brethren about our hypocrisy, what is the right attitude? Right attitude is to own it, to confess it, and to seek their forgiveness. But also, at the same time, telling them about the gospel. When you have conversation with non-believers, they have wrong ideas about Christianity. Because nobody really told them about the gospel that we believe. So they have some information, they have heard it from here and there. So they have wrong idea about what a Christian is. So while we own it and confess it and we 
we seek their forgiveness, at the same time we tell them that our gospel is that gospel that saves by grace. And by that same grace, I am making a probably slow progress in my sanctification. So the contradiction that you see in my life does not deny the reality of the gospel. Actually, it explains what the gospel is. So we ask them, and we, even ourselves, we fix our eyes on Christ and tell them to look at Christ. And He alone is our Savior, and that's our hope. So, I would say this to the church. In the presence of sin and contradiction like these men, they are preaching the gospel, but deep inside, they hated Paul. Paul, you think you're famous? You see, God put you in the prison. Probably you're a sinner. And it is now my time to shine. Probably that's what is happening here. But in the the presence of sin, I would say to all of you, we should never be naive about their presence and the power of sin simply because we see it. But we will never be cynical about that reality because where sin abounds, the grace of God abounds still more and Christ will remain faithful even if we remain faithless as we have confessed earlier. And will not become bitter. But again, we put our hope in Christ. So when Paul does not condemn them, it confuses us. So is that the right thing? Is it okay for people to go around and have wrong motives, but yet promote the gospel? Let's hear what Paul says in the same Philippians 2.3. He does not approve them. He says this, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. But with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. So he's not approving them. You want something more clear? As I've been saying, um, I've been trying to read more Calvin, and Calvin has audacity to say this regarding that former group. We ought, therefore, to rejoice if God accomplishes anything that is good by means of wicked persons, wicked persons. But they ought not, on that account, to be either placed by us in the ministry or looked upon as Christ's lawful ministers. That's, that's good. Let's move on now. That's the reality. Even Paul had his enemies. And it has been my observation and my experience too. The the farmer you stand on the truth, you will have more enemies. When you hear verse 18, really that is the heart of that joy theme. Let me read verse 18 again. Let's read it again. Verse 18. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. Yes, I will rejoice. What do you think? How can he come to that conclusion, verse 18? Rejoicing. 
He had so many problems. He himself is locked up in a prison. Some progress here and there, but some people are trying to annoy him, add pain onto his existence. So we say, well, he had a face like flint. He had a big heart. You see, he, he doesn't care about these people. You know, he just goes on. He just has a big heart to, to receive them and continue on this gospel mission. I don't think that is what is happening. I believe the conclusion is this. The right word that explains the frame of this apostle's mind and heart is his self-forgetfulness. I think that's the word that you want to know. In this situation, what enabled him to go on and even rejoice in that situation is not so much that he had a big heart, but then he is forgetting about himself. What then? Only in every way, whether in truth or pretense, Christ is proclaimed. In that I rejoice. So when you think about that verse, he could say this even with the presence of his enemies, simply and precisely because there is that self-forgetfulness or self-abandonment, self-denial or self-abasement, but self-forgetfulness. That's what is happening, I believe. The self-forgetfulness of Paul and by Paul is not a state of Zen. Zen Buddhism. I don't know if you have Buddhist friends, but these days, no, not many people really practice Buddhism in such a way, but you will hear something about breathing technique, yoga, or meditation, things like that. They are all aiming for that Buddhist teaching. That self-forgetfulness and nothingness by emptying themselves and when they become one with the universe, that they call it the nirvana, the snuffed out state. To forget about pain, death, lust, torment. So they practice all kinds of techniques to forget about themselves. That's their idea. And I even hear many Christians practicing yoga or meditation, things like that, to, to forget about it, to have quietness of the mind. And if you have one of those watches, electronic watches, they remind you to breathe, to have meditations, all of that uh, idea. Paul's, therefore, this Christian self-forgetfulness is different, I believe. First of all, Paul's self-forgetfulness comes from his identity. It's not self-emptying practice. It's not simply meditation. But remember, a long time ago, we talked about how he introduced himself in verse 1. Paul and Timothy, 
slaves of Christ Jesus. His self-forgetfulness comes from his correct and true knowledge of self in relation to the Creator God. So his self-forgetfulness is not mystical experience, but it is theological and it is Christological. He could forget about himself because he is a slave of Christ. My will, my aspiration, my plan, they really do not matter because I am his doulos. And whatever Christ the Lord says, whatever he has planned it out for me, my job as his servant and slave is to simply obey. So when we have too much anxiety in your heart, in, my, in our hearts, we need to go back to our identity. I dare say, no matter what the Buddhists try to do, I don't think they could forget about themselves. I don't think you could escape yourself. I mean, it's simply you. It is you. But Paul could go through all of that. He does not have to really spend too much time about worrying about his reputation by these false people who have proclaimed the gospel outside, but inside betrays the content of the gospel. He doesn't have to really worry about that because he remembers who he is in Christ. A slave can forget about himself. So think about that. And what is required of servant, Bible says, moreover, it is required of stewards, different word, but the same concept that they may be found faithful. That's what you need to worry about. That's what I need to worry about. Matthew 25, 21 says, His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant, but same or slave. You are faithful with few things, and I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. So servant's joy is not his own joy, but his joy is found in his master's joy. And his joy is meaningful only insofar as in participating in Christ or the master's joy. So I would say to have that kind of joy, it starts from your identity. Self-forgetfulness comes from our identity in Christ. It is intensified through your faithfulness to your master. What Paul has to worry about is his faithfulness and nothing else. And that joy will be found and kept in the master's joy for Paul and for us. That's his self-forgetfulness. That's his joy. Not his own But when Christ is proclaimed, in some sense, Christ is joyful by seeing his gospel being proclaimed. And Paul is participating in that. He says, I will rejoice. So let's expand this a bit more using, once again, Calvin. I am doing a bit of penance by saying Calvin was boring. 
but, but I do not want to dismiss him, and I want the next generation Christians to read Calvin, his institutes, and I happen to be in his book, three chapters, six through ten, that they usually come out with a small, a little book on a Christian life. And it fits perfectly with our theme today. How can you practice that Christian self-forgetfulness? If you go home, how can you forget about yourself? Well, by remembering who you are, yes. But listen to a few more things from him. 371 says this, For as the surest source of destruction to man is to obey themselves, so the only haven of safety is to have no other will, no other wisdom, than to follow the Lord wherever He leads. Let this then be the first step, to abandon ourselves and devote the whole energy of our minds to the service of God. I thought that was great in- insight. Self-forgetfulness is not nothingness. It is to abandon ourselves, our will, our plans, so that we could devote the whole energy of our minds to the service of God. So you forget about yourself by preaching the gospel. You forget about yourself, your big, your personal self, by abandoning yourself in order to focus your whole energy onto the service of God. That's good. I mean, that's something that we could practice. Next paragraph, 7.2 says this. Certainly, postponing our own reason, we faithfully make it our study to obey God and His commandments. Once again, you forget about yourself, and now you make it your aim to study and obey God and His commandments. And again, he says, the Christian ought to be so trained I like that word because self-forgetfulness, we could talk about it here. It's not going to come easily. If you're learning how to play tennis or basketball, shouldn't you practice? Same thing. Self-forgetfulness is not something that you hear about it and go home and you are good for the rest of your life. You have to practice. So it's so to be trained, disposed as to consider that during his whole life he has to do with God. For this reason, as he will bring all things to the disposal and estimate of God, so he he will religiously direct his whole mind to him. So that's Calvin's concept of self-forgetfulness. Abandon yourself, but direct your mind to obey and serve God. That is something that you should aim for. Again, by looking at verse 18, he says, Yes, I will rejoice. For him to say that, I think he's doing these three things, and I think we should be doing these three things as well. Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. Paul, in prison, His ears are open to the news of the church and the progress of the gospel. Basically, simply, he's caring about the church and the gospel. So he's listening. Whatever you are listening to, whatever you are spending your time on, 
Those are the things that occupy your mind. Paul, for him to rejoice at the progress of the gospel, he's listening, he's praying, he's thinking about missionaries, he's thinking about this church, sister church, he's thinking about pastors and elders, brothers and sisters, service, Sunday, Sunday school, thinking about all of that, and because your mind is occupied with the news, when you hear about a slight progress of someone growing in Christ, you will be able to rejoice. You cannot spend six days in the world, basically fallen world, and turn your attention back to God on one Sunday. Our mind, my mind doesn't work like that. So he's listening. He's praying for the progress of the gospel. So he's bound but the word of God is not bound. So he's praying for the brethren. That's something that is certain, as you will hear in coming verses. So you pray for other people, and when you see them growing, church growing, there is that great or rejoicing in you because you, in certain sense, help them. So listening, caring, praying for them, but also he's able to rejoice in the fact that Christ is being proclaimed because he is practicing that. Otherwise, he will feel guilty. What am I doing? They are doing that. I'm not doing anything. So he will feel guilty. But because he is proclaiming Christ within his domain of influence, he is able to rejoice with the people who is doing the same thing outside. So we need to do that. If you want to say, like Paul, I I, I rejoice in the fact that Christ is being proclaimed, then you and I should have our ears open, praying, and at the same time practicing these things. Yesterday, I was just relaxing on a couch, and it occurred to me that I think for many people, the theme of This Philippians is about joy. But yesterday it dawned on me again that this joy that we are talking about here today is a different kind of joy altogether. I think the problem is many people have their idea of joy. And they want the word, Jesus, and God to help them to to maintain it, make their asset of joy grow. I think that's wrong. I think what is happening here is we are talking about different kind of joy, just different kind. As there are different hearts, hearts born of the gospel would be a different kind of heart. This joy is, the seed is different, it is gospel related. The soil is different, where it is growing is different. The sun ray is different. This is altogether a different kind of Joy. So we need to examine our hearts and minds to see what kind of joy that we are talking about. You want your joy to be. His joy is not secular joy. It is not the happiness. It is not, I want to be happy. It is joy that is tied to his doulos identity. It's that joy that rejoices in the fact alone of being gospel, being proclaimed. That alone gives the whole nutrients to to make it grow and get bigger. 
So if you hear this news and say, say to your, you say to yourself, I'm not joyful, then that joy might be a different kind of joy. It has to be replaced, replanted, and it has to grow by the divine grace of God. That's the joy that we are talking about. So the secret of Paul's joy is not so much on the method part, but having a different kind of joy. The joy that, that will grow in the gospel news. And I will end with this idea. I will give you an Excalibur that can slay the giant or dragon of misery. And that Excalibur is this. It's not mystical. If you will look at verse 18, that first two words, that's the Excalibur. What's that? What is that? It translates it in this way. What then? What then? I looked it up. It is actually well, a couple of two Greek words but the main part is what. That is one word. It could be what, who, when. You could translate it in whatever way. And I thought, what then is such a noble translation? My translation would be so what. So the former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition Thinking, assuming to cause me affliction in my chains. So what? So there is your Excalibur. That is the spirit sword. Sword of the spirit. You look at your life and think about the struggles that, that, is, that is robbing you of your joy. It could be the past experience that is still hanging over your head in verse 15 through 17. How can they do that? If they are Christians, how could they do that to me? You are going to take that sword and say, so what? And cut it off. So what? You experience, so what? Yes, I'm hurt. I was betrayed. I was maligned. Falsely accused. They say all kinds of things and even you are confused. That's the time you are going to use verse 18. What then? What then? What can they do to me? What are they doing to me? Paul, he says, what then? So what? What matters is my master's kingdom is the purity of the gospel and the men who are preaching the gospel. I don't care, but I want to see a church growing, people being evangelized, served, and proclaimed, Christ being proclaimed. So what? So that you use to cut all of the distractions. It's not once and for all, just, you just have to do it over and over again. Even in the middle, middle of the night, you wake up thinking about that person, thinking about that situation. It just doesn't go away. Over and over again, you discipline yourself. 
to focus your mind and put your entire energy to Jesus' command, to obey as Calvin teaches. If you forget about yourself, you and I, we are but dust. We return to dust. And Spurgeon says, be content to be nothing, for that's what you are. What's really important? You have to ask that question. What's really important? Paul says, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. I will rejoice. Told you that's a different kind of joy. Correct translation would be, I will be rejoiced. It is future passive. It will be done to me. I'm not the one who's rejoicing, but the rejoicing will be done unto me, even in the future. Well, does he know the future? He doesn't know. He's not God. But he's able to say, I will rejoice. What a wonderful thought that is for all Christians whose hope lies in Christ alone, whose joy lies in the fact that his kingdom is being expanded. So let us do that. Let us practice this. And let us come back next Sunday rejoicing in Christ. Let's pray.